Make sure we keep uh, Roy uh, Brown in your prayers. His brother passed away last night. And uh, just so just keep him in your prayers and his family. Uh, also, we just want to thank the worship team who are leading us in song just for uh, what they do for us. And uh, uh, praise God for the time and the effort that they put out to um, lead us in song and worship. Um, and also everyone who helps set up. Praise God for all the effort that goes into um, our worship time. So, my daughters get really fearful, and in fact, I should say terrified, when there are sounds of lightning or uh, fireworks going off at night. And uh, what they usually do is when they hear fireworks or lightning, they come running to their dad. They come running to me. And they start begging me, Dad, please come into our room. Please come into our room. And so what I often end up doing is going into their room and uh, um, sitting down on the floor. And they come out of their beds and, and lay down right next to me. And uh, I really think there's kind of a conspiracy here. I think deep down in their hearts, although they look frightened, they get kind of excited when they hear fireworks. I think they get kind of excited when they hear lightning. I think for them it is an opportunity to go to dad and get dad to be with them in their room. And this is my point. If the presence, if my presence brings comfort to my kids in the storms that they face, how much more does God's presence bring comfort to his people in a greater storm, in exile? You see, the exile that we are looking at here in Isaiah is the most terrible event that has happened to God's people. Amazingly, this very exile becomes the very means to bring comfort to God's people. The exile, the difficult situations, the turmoil they experienced is the very means for them to feel the depth of God's comfort. In the last few weeks, we spent quite a bit of time looking at how, in a sense, we are in exile. Not just in a sense, the Bible says we are. God's people are not at home. We're not where we belong. We're outside of our country. And Isaiah 40 is the introduction to Isaiah 40 through 66 that is all about comfort for the exiles. It's all comfort for God's people. And today we are hearing the message that brings the greatest comfort to exiles like us. And it's the simplest message you can imagine, but there's a lot to it. Listen to these words. These are the words of comfort. Behold your God. Behold your God means that God has arrived to rescue his people. It means that God is in sight, that God is near, that he has come for us. Here he is. And really, you might say, This is the very essence of the gospel. It's kind of the gospel in a nutshell. Behold your God. He has come. 
And this fits logically with the, pro- pro- with the progression that we, that we saw in verses 3 through 8, is, doesn't it? Today we're looking at verses 9 through 11, but we've seen this progression going on. We've seen God is coming. God is coming. And then we saw prepare the way for the Lord. And then we saw every valley shall be lifted up. The humble shall be raised up and the proud shall be lowered. He is coming whether you are ready or not. (laughs) Nothing can stop him from coming. And then all of a sudden we get to nine. Behold your God. He is here. He has come. The greatest news of all. And for a people who are in exile, a people who are in the midst of a storm, who are terrified by the realities of life around them, there is no greater news than this. This is the greatest news we could possibly hear. For a people wondering, has God forgotten us? Is there any, great, any good news for us? Has God abandoned us? Have we fallen so far that God is no longer going to deliver us? Has he forsaken us? The answer is no, he hasn't. God has not forsaken us. God is faithful to his promises. There is good news today. And by the way, this is how God comforts us. How does God comfort us? Does he comfort us from a distance? The answer is no. God comforts us by coming to us. God comforts us by his very presence. And he comforts us by unveiling his glory. If you want comfort, that's where it's found. Comfort is found in the presence of God. For a people who are alienated from God, who are separated from God, all comfort is found in the presence of God. God with us, right? And God unveiling and showing us the greatness of his glory. And that's where comfort is found. You don't find comfort Anywhere else but in God. So the question for us is, where do you go if you're to find this comfort? If, if, if you are to have this comfort, if God has brought comfort, then where do we go? What do we do if we're to experience the comfort of God? And the answer is not to say, oh, God has come. Therefore, I can turn on the TV and relax and be comforted. <laughs> the answer is no. No, the answer is to look to God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Isn't that where comfort is found? You see, God is the good news. And it's by turning to him that we find comfort. In fact, you might wonder, what does it mean to behold God? And the answer is this. To look at him, to contemplate him, to think of him to meditate on him, to ponder him and his character. And there is really no better position for the people of God to be in in all this world. There's no better position to be in than to be pondering, to be beholding, to be thinking about, to be meditating on the character of God and his glories. Meditating on God is the place where his people find comfort and peace and joy and where we grow, and where we become more like Him. We need to understand and be convinced of this, that this is the greatest message of all, if we are to live rightly as God's people. 
It is so important that this little phrase become embedded in our mind, that we understand the importance of beholding our God if we are to ever live as God's people. You see, for those outside of God's favor, this is the most terrifying message you could ever imagine, right? But for those who have repented, who have turned to God in faith, there is no greater message than behold your God. Hearing this message makes us smile. It makes us cheer. It brings uh, a thrill. It thrills our hearts to hear that God has come and we can see him. We can look at him and there is comfort. Sadly, there are many even so-called Christians today and even churches that never really get this. Isn't that amazing? Many think that the message they need to hear is how to live a better life. They think that's the most important message. They go to church thinking they are going to hear how to live a better life as if that was the chief message we needed to hear. Or self-improvement, which is basically the same thing I just said. Self-improvement. Some people go and think that the purpose why we are here is some kind of self-improvement. Or we think the value of a message is how good it makes me feel about myself. What you need to hear and what you need to long for more than anything else is behold your God. That's what you need. What else do you need today than to behold your God? What else do you need more than that? The answer is there's nothing we need more than that. You need Christ to be exalted. You need your comfort to be exalted. You need your hope and salvation and peace and joy and righteousness to be exalted. And you should long for this more than anything else. You should come to church anticipating hearing God. (laughs) You should come to church anticipate hearing I need God. And here he is. He has come. He has come to deliver us. He has died for me. He has risen from the dead. And therein is my salvation. There is my comfort. And there is my hope. And you ask the question, what is the answer that God gives throughout the Bible? Remember Job? I feel like I've been bringing him up recently. What was God's answer to him? After he went through this great ordeal, does God tell Job, well, just so you know, I brought these trials on you for this reason, and uh, that should bring comfort to you? Or does he say, well, I had this thing and I told Satan he can only take away certain things from you. Just so you know, that's really what was going on. Uh, God doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't give any answers to Job. All he says is, behold, your God. (laughs) And that's all Job needed to hear. That's all the answer he needed to hear was, behold, your God. When it says, behold, your God, what is the actual fulfillment of this? And I want us to imagine that you're hearing Isaiah's words, all right? 150 years before the exile, the contemporaries of Isaiah. And you would be looking forward in faith as if it was a present reality to God coming, to the reality of God. The words of God are so true, it's as if it's a present reality for us. And so we would, they would look forward. Behold your God, he is here, he has come. His words are that true. But those who are 150 years after Isaiah, remember these are the ones he's actually speaking to are in exile, they would have experienced a type of, of, of the coming of God in their deliverance from exile. They would have beheld God in, in their deliverance and it would have been a, a type of the coming of, of God. 
But the ultimate fulfillment of Behold Your God is Christ Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment is what we look back to, is the coming of Jesus to us. When he was incarnated among us, as he took on flesh and walked among us, that is the fulfillment of Behold Your God. That is God with us. And all these other experiences of God, where God came and manifested himself, were merely precursors to the ultimate fulfillment of God when he would come. And by the way, we are looking for God to return again, aren't we? Behold your God, he is coming again. And so that's what we look to, and that's the ultimate fulfillment of what it says here in Behold Your God. So what is it like to behold your God? What do we see when we're beholding our God? And verses 10 through 11 tells us what it looks like to behold our God. When you behold God, you'll see him as the almighty warrior. Listen to the words of verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Notice the name here. It's Adonai Yahweh. And what that means is sovereign God. What that means is the omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God. He is the mighty, powerful one, the almighty warrior God. His ruling arm symbolizes strength and authority in action. Notice it says his ruling arm here. And that refers to his almighty, powerful strength in action, ruling for him. And you've got to understand that God has no chinks in his armor. God has no Achilles heel. He has no weaknesses at all or whatsoever. God has no need for any help to achieve victory. There's nothing really standing in his way. And God shows us this multiple times throughout the Bible, doesn't he? Remember Gideon? God was showing that he could defeat the enemy without any help. He didn't need Gideon. And then later on, remember the cross. The cross. God was showing us that he single-handedly brings victory. It's by his power and his strength that he brings us to victory. And the problem for us is that when we see the incarnation, when we see Christ coming to us, God with us, when we look through the lens of the world, we see anything but power, right? We see anything but strength. We see weakness. We see powerlessness. He didn't come with the blows of the sword or with the wielding the mighty axe, did he? He didn't come with the pomp and circumstance of a king. Instead, he veiled his glory, set aside his his glory. We see humility, frailty, destitution, poverty, smallness, a baby, this infinite condescension, humility beyond imagination. <laughs> we see death on a cross by the hands of his own rebellious creation. One incredible thought. But, but when you see God through the lens of faith, when you see Christ with us, the incarnation through the lens of faith, what you see is unparalleled power and unparalleled authority. So what we're seeing here is true. He did come with power and authority, didn't he? You see, taking on flesh is power. That is incredible power. God coming to us. We see power displayed in casting out the demons. The wilderness temptations that he overcome all the schemes of the devil. We see power in his forgiving sins. You see, the only one who can forgive sins is the one who is sinned against. And so Jesus, when he forgave sins, was saying, I have the right to forgive your sins because you sinned against me. 
And that's why people were so mad at him, because only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus, when he forgives sins, was saying, I am powerful, I am all-powerful, I am God. And all of this, all of these displays of power were only precursors to the greatest display of power in his own death and his own resurrection. Just think about that for a moment. All of those other displays of power throughout the life of Jesus were precursors to the greatest display of power that has ever happened in the history of the universe. Even greater than God creating everything out of nothing is his overcoming the enemy on the cross. He displayed power like it has never been displayed before or can never be displayed again before the eyes of man. This is the pinnacle of the display of God's power. He put his power on display for us through the cross like nowhere else, defeating every enemy that stood against us. And one day he will unveil his glory before us when he comes, kind of like he did at the Mount of Transfiguration, but he will unveil his glory for all to see. And listen to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 just to give us a taste of this powerful Jesus who will come again in victory. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What an incredible thought. What a powerful God who displays his power. We also see his power here not only in his arm ruling with him, not only in his great name that is above every other name, but also in the reward that he takes with him after victory. What we see here is he's taking his reward with him. He has just gained victory. He's a powerful warrior king, and he comes back from the victory with the reward with him. Imagine a great victorious king bearing with him the spoils of his victory, returning from war. And this is exactly how we're to to view God here. This is exactly how we're supposed to view him here. He has won the victory and is bringing his spoils. So the question is, what are these spoils? What are these rewards that he has won? And I believe the spoils and the rewards here are his people whom he has redeemed. The payment he has received from his victory, the reward is the redeemed. And when we experience the gospels, we become the spoil of, of war. We become the reward that he has accomplished on the cross. And this would fit with the context in other biblical passages as well. You see, Jesus is pictured, God is pictured as coming in victory, right? And then in verse 11, we see him carrying his sheep in his arms. That is his reward. That is what he has won. That is what he has accomplished. And this sounds to me like Matthew 12, verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus has plundered the enemy. He has received his reward. And we are seeing it in the people of God being redeemed. When you behold God, you'll see not only the almighty warrior, but also the gentle shepherd who cares for his sheep. Notice that in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Imagine A shepherd tending carefully for his sheep. Imagine a shepherd loving his sheep, carrying them right near his heart. And that's that's what it means here. He's carrying his, his sheep. And there's this intricate concern for each one of his sheep here. This incredible intimacy. He cares for his sheep. He lovingly cares for them. 
In other words, what we see here is the shepherd is doing what shepherd does, right? They care for their sheep. A good shepherd does. And so the question is, what is the ultimate fulfillment of this shepherd here? Who is the good shepherd? And the answer is, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In John 10, verse 11, I lay down my life for my sheep. In John 18, verse 9, we hear this really comforting news where we read, not one of his sheep that were given to him has been lost. And not one of his sheep will ever be lost. God will bring his sheep to safety. He will care for them tenderly as a shepherd. We might have a little difficulty understanding what a shepherd is and does, but at those days they would understand perfectly what is meant by a shepherd. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the shepherd picture here. He is the good shepherd. One way we see God care for a sheep today is through under-shepherds, right? We see different ways that God cares for his sheep, and that's why it is such a, a serious thing to lead the sheep astray. Those who teach things that are not accurate with Scripture are, are in serious trouble. The Bible says it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of his little ones to stumble. That's a serious consequence, isn't it? But ultimately, what we need to understand is whether it's through means, however God does it, that God is going to ultimately take care of his sheep and lead them to safety. And so the picture here, and, and, and get this, try to get this picture in your mind. Here is the all-powerful, omnipotent warrior God who is able to save his people. Notice that. Because he is the all-powerful, omnipotent God, he is able to save his people. But also, he is the compassionate shepherd God who wants to save his people, who delights in saving his people, who is determined to save his people because he cares for them and he loves them. And this is what our God looks like. This is how we are to understand our God. He is both omnipotent and he is compassionate. He is both able and he is both willing to save his people. The arm that is raised in triumph is the arm that takes his sheep into his arms and protects them and cares for them. Behold your God. Behold your God. This message is not only one that we are to receive. And really the focus of this passage is not just that you're to receive this message, but those who have received it are to be the ones who give it. This is really the point of the passage. You are to give this message. You who have experienced the comfort are to give the message of comfort. And notice, who are the ones who are supposed to give the message? It says Zion, Jerusalem the herald of good news. And this really means, thank you, Hudson. <laughs> this really means, um, what that refers to is God's people. Those who have received the comfort, those who know God, those who are believing in God. It's the same people in verse one of this chapter. Those who have beheld God are the ones who are to proclaim the message of behold your God. So the question is, why are they the ones who are to give the message? Why are they the ones who are to proclaim, Behold your God? And the answer is quite obvious, isn't it? Those who have beheld God are the best to proclaim God. Those who have seen his greatness, who have experienced his comfort, are the best to proclaim, Here is your God. 
Otherwise, how can we accurately, or in any way that is due to his name, proclaim it? And the answer is, only those who have experienced the gospel can faithfully and in such a way that honors his name say, Behold your God, the way he deserves to be proclaimed. And those who have received it will want to give it. In fact, those who have been born again become message givers. They become heralders. They become those who proclaim the message of good news. So the question is, who are you to give the message to? And notice, it says, say to the cities of Judah. So in other words, to the surrounding cities. In other words, those who need the message of comfort. You have to remember, uh, God's people are in exile at this time. They're not even near Jerusalem. (laughs) You know, for the most part, there were probably a few of them that were still there, that were left there, um, if you read through the scriptures. But the majority of the people would have been in exile. And so what he's talking about here is you are to proclaim it to God's people. You are to proclaim it to those who need to hear it, to those who need to receive it, to those who are not yet God's people and need to receive it, right? And everybody needs to hear the message of comfort that is only found in Jesus Christ. In Acts, we see Jesus telling his disciples the very same call, Behold your God, and that is to begin in Judah and to go out through Jerusalem and throughout to the whole world in Acts 1 verse 8. Listen to this. But you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. In other words, behold your God. <laughs> in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? The word of God went out. They proclaimed, behold your God to the world. He has come. He has come for us. Our comfort has come. So how are you to give this message? How are you to give it? And there are some instructions here on how to give it. In verse 9. You are first of all to go to the most advantageous position for the most people to hear. Notice, go on up to a high mountain. And the mountain would have been the most conspicuous place to proclaim the message. The most advantageous location to proclaim the message of good news. And you miss the point entirely if you think you're just supposed to go up to a mountain and it doesn't matter if people are around or not. (laughs) That's missing the point, isn't it? The point is that people are supposed to hear it. You're supposed to go to where people can hear it, right? This is a message that is worthy of being heard by all. So go up and proclaim it where people can hear it. Not only that, but you're to give the message loudly. Notice it says here, lift up your voice. In other words, turn up the volume. And This is not saying screech it, like scream it. Sometimes in my family, when my kids get rowdy, there's a lot of screaming going on, right? But that's not what it's talking about here, right? It's talking about in a way that people can understand it. In a way that people can, can hear you and articulate what you're saying. What is the point of giving a message if no one can hear it? And this is a message that should be proclaimed loudly and in such a way that everyone can hear it. And also, it says here, along with those instructions, it says you're to give the message without fear. Fear not, it says. So the question is, as you go up to this mountain, as you proclaim loudly, what is there to fear? What might be fearsome about doing this? And in context, I wonder if it's the truthfulness of the message. I wonder if someone might be concerned that they might be disappointed, that maybe it's not as it appears to be. 
And God would say, don't fear. Don't fear. Give the message with boldness. Give the message with courage. It is true. God has come. Behold your God. Proclaim it from the rooftops. But I wonder for us if it might be more so that we are fearful of how people might respond. And if so, you're not alone in your fear. I think all of us, all of us have a tendency to fear. Is, is that true? Is it true that there are times when you are tempted to fear? And perhaps this is why Paul asks for prayer the way he does in Ephesians 6, verse 19 through 20. Listen to what he says. He asks for prayer that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly. And another way of saying that, the, say, the word means fearlessly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So it's almost as if Paul is saying, I too am tempted to fear. And so pray for me that I might say it fearlessly and boldly. And I believe that the best way to overcome fear, how are we to overcome this? And I believe the best way to overcome fear is to behold our God. You see, it doesn't take away from the, 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 the size or the, the, the fearfulness of the enemy in itself. But when we behold our God, the enemy looks that much smaller in our minds, don't they? Or whatever we might fear looks that much smaller in our minds. I imagine David going up to Goliath, right? And he had such a big view of God that Goliath must have looked very small in comparison to God. So even though we might still, in a sense, fear things, when we behold our God, those fears become very, very small in comparison. And we have boldness to proclaim the message. You should be more concerned about people actually hearing the gospel than what might happen to you if they do hear it (laughs) and don't like it. This is the only word of comfort. How will people hear unless there's a preacher? And you are the means God uses to bring his word to the world. So don't let people or their opinions silence you. Rather, speak the truth in love. Remember that your God and his message are bigger Remember that all flesh is like grass that withers. Remember that God's word endures forever. And if they don't like the message, then what can they really do to you, right? Remember your goal is simply to magnify God and to say, behold your God. Proclaim his greatness. Say that he is great. That is really what the message, proclaiming the message of the gospel is all about. We see his greatness on the cross, don't we? And so we proclaim the cross. We proclaim that God came to us and died for us and rose from the dead so that our sins might be forgiven. And that by believing and trusting in him, we can have life and comfort um, in its fullness like we can never find anywhere else. A story in 2 Kings 7 illustrates our responsibility very well. Israel was in a time of great famine because they were under siege by the Syrians. I mean, it was awful. People were doing incredibly awful things. And there were four outcast lepers who were thinking who were, who were thinking through things and their situation. And they thought, well, if we enter into the city, we will die of famine. If we stay at the entrance of the city, we will die of famine as well. <laughs> if we enter into the camp of the Syrians who were all around them, they were laying siege to them, then we will probably die as well. <laughs> but maybe we won't. Right? So what do they do? They determined... They were going to enter the camp of the Syrians. Now, these were Israelite lepers, and they decided to enter the camp of the Syrians. What do they have to lose is really what they determined. 
So what they find is that no one is in the camp. The camp is empty. You see, in fact, God had made it sound like there was chariots who were coming, an army of chariots, a great army of chariots coming. And so the Syrians thought that an army was coming to attack them. So they fled and they left all their treasures, all their food, everything behind. And so these four lepers came and started taking everything they could and burying it. You know, what else do you do, I guess? You, you take care of your stuff. You bury your treasure. But then they said to one another, they said this, We're not doing right. This day is, de- is the day of good news. So what do they do? They go to Israel and they proclaim within the city that the Syrians are gone. That not only has God taken away the siege, but he has left us with a banquet. He has left us with a banquet. Isn't this a great picture of what God has called us to do? How can we not proclaim the good news? How can we not tell others there's a banquet? Not only has God defeated the enemies through Christ, but he has left us a banquet of good news for us to hear. For those who turn to Christ for their salvation. If my daughters find a sort of comfort in beholding their dad in a thunderstorm, how much more comfort is there in beholding God in the storm of life? How much more comfort is there that God has come to rescue us? Have you looked to Jesus for salvation? Have you looked to him for the comfort of salvation? In Numbers 21, 4 through 9, God was killing off his people through a, a disease because they had rebelled against him. And so as grace, he told Moses to erect a a, a pole with a snake on it. And everyone who looked at the snake would live. And Jesus in John 3 says, I am. That is an illustration of me. Everyone who looks to me, who believes in me, will be saved. So the answer for us is, if you are outside of God's favor, if you have no comfort, which is what it means to be outside of God's favor, then you need to look to God. Look to him as they look to that snake in the wilderness and they were saved. There's actually snakes that were biting them and killing them. And when they looked to that snake, they would live. And Jesus says, that is an illustration of me. Are you looking, beholding Jesus today for your comfort, believer? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, not only do we find comfort, but we grow in beholding the face of Jesus Christ. That's how we grow. We don't look to him alone for salvation. We, we stare at him. We behold him. We keep our gaze on him and his character. Are you committed to spending your life giving the message of comfort? What else would you do with your life than give this message? In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, Paul says that that is our message. We are ambassadors as if Christ were speaking through us, be reconciled to God. And I think what keeps us often from giving the message is that we have failed to behold God ourselves. The result is that we often end up with superficial, artificial answers. We find comfort in superficial and artificial places. Even churches begin to preach things other than God. And we begin to focus our lives on other things than God. And what we end up with is absolutely no comfort at all. So much that is done in churches today is a waste of time. All because we are not understanding the need, nor practicing, beholding God with our lives. 
For those who have seen God by faith and are looking to him, there is no substitute, no other message than behold our God. And we must be committed to this. Beholding our God week after week after week through his word. And when you get home, behold your God. And when you, when you come back to church, expect to see, behold your God. And when you go out, proclaim, behold your God. He has come and he has brought with him salvation. What a great God we have and what a great message we have today. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your wonderful word to us. I thank you that you have given us the message of salvation. Lord, that you have given us the message of comfort. Lord, there is no comfort outside of you. But Lord, you have given us everything we need in your son Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful for your son. We are so thankful that you have come to us. That you have not remained at an arm's length away from us. But you have come, Lord, and you have given us the message. There is salvation in no other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I pray that today you would bring salvation to those who are lost. Lord, to those who have no legitimate comfort in this life. May they find it in you, Jesus. May you save them. May you deliver them from your wrath and bring them safely into your kingdom. And God, I pray for all of us that we would recommit our lives to to beholding our God and to proclaiming this message to the world around us. Lord, I thank you for this good news. We thank you for this great news. Lord, we rejoice today. We rejoice today in this message that our God has come, that he is all-powerful, and that he is compassionate, and that he not only is able to save, but he is willing and will save. In Jesus' name, amen.